3: I'm Ido Volk, Europe Correspondent in Berlin.
2: I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, DC.
1: I'm Jeremy Cliff, Writer-at-Large in Berlin.
3: It's Thursday, the 20th of April. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs.
2: Days before the invasion of Ukraine last year, Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping declared a no-limits friendship. We look at what's happened to their partnership since then.
3: Right now, we are seeing a change we haven't seen for a hundred years. And we are driving this change together.
1: And I discussed my reporting trip to Turkey ahead of pivotal elections in May, which could see the two-decade-long rule by President Recep Tayyip Erdoğan come to an end.
3: I am grateful to God that we will be walking side by side with you. Our first time voting youth in the elections that will be held on May
1: 14th.
3: Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Since the start of the war in Ukraine last year, there's been intense focus on the China-Russia relationship, and whether Xi Jinping might be preparing to distance himself from Russia, or, as French President Emmanuel Macron hopes, he might pressure Putin to end the war. That debate intensified after Xi's visit to Moscow in March. Katie, you've been looking into the history and the outlook of the China-Russia relationship for this week's New Statesman. So let's start with that visit to Moscow. What message was it intended to send, and what did we learn about the relationship between the two countries from it?
2: So I think the optics of the visit were clearly intended to signal that nothing has changed despite the war in Ukraine. So you saw, you know, actually just days ahead of Xi Jinping landing in Moscow, we got the news that Vladimir Putin was wanted by the International Criminal Court for war crimes. But nevertheless, she still turned up in Moscow. He was greeted with extraordinary honors everywhere he went. There was a military band to serenade him getting off the airplane at Vanukovo Airport. Vladimir Putin held an extraordinary, elabor- an extraordinarily elaborate welcome ceremony inside the St. George's Hall of the Kremlin, Whenever they appeared in public together during the trip, they referred to each other as dear friend, they toasted each other over a seven-course banquet, and their public remarks were very complimentary to each other and to the strength of their relationship. I think this meant a great deal to Russia and to Vladimir Putin to be able to point to China, this major economic power, and to show both its own citizens and people outside Russia that Russia is not as isolated as the West might hope, that it still has this strong relationship with China, which is showing no open signs of distancing itself from Russia. And despite Macron's um, very greatest hopes, absolutely no intention of pressuring Putin to do anything to end this war. In fact, what we saw and what we've seen consistently actually over, over the last year is China really amplifying Russian talking points about the war and really helping to to dignify this very self-serving narrative on the russian side that russia was somehow forced into this that it's nato it's the west it's the united states that is stoking the flames of this conflict and china is merely calling on all sides to find a way to to come to peace so china is really only helping russia's war effort in that sense. But this isn't an altruistic gesture. China wants something from the relationship too. So the point of the cover story was really to delve into that in more depth and look at what are the factors that really do hold this relationship together? What do Putin and Xi get out of it? And what are we not seeing behind these very rosy public scenes? Where are the areas where they really disagree? And where are the real sources of tension that could become quite problematic in the relationship in the years to come?
3: And you've got this excellent cover story this week, which covers the history of this relationship quite deeply. You opened with this extraordinary anecdote that two months after founding the People's Republic of China, Mao Zedong, who's just won the Chinese, uh, the Chinese Civil War, traveled to Moscow to meet Joseph Stalin. And Stalin apparently kept him waiting 17 days before he granted him a second audience. And obviously, that's impossible to imagine now the shift in the relative power of both Of both countries, or at least the successor country in one case, um, has shifted so significantly. So what role does history play in this? Because of course, Russia is the successor state to the Soviet Union, and these were the two largest communist countries in the world. Can you give us the kind of historical background?
2: Yeah so firstly just to point readers towards the piece I really wondered when you started to go into that anecdote Ida, whether you were going to give the expletive laden quote from Mao about his feelings about that treatment
3: we are a family we're a family friendly podcast not a family friendly magazine maybe but a family friendly podcast <laughs>
2: I was waiting to discover whether May was going to let you get away with that or not. Suffice to say, May was displeased by his treatment in Moscow. The, part of this piece was honestly an, an excuse to talk to some of the scholars that I most admire who are looking at this relationship, one of whom is Sergei Wachenko. And when I talked to him about what are we missing, particularly in Western commentary about the China-Russia relationship, he replied with one word, which was history. You can't understand the modern relationship and the considerations for both Putin and Xi without understanding the history. So it's a four century long relationship, which starts in the early 17th century and which is mostly defined by wariness, mutual suspicion, real tensions over the border. There's an exceptionally long, I think one of the world's longest borders between China and Russia, more than 4,300 kilometers. And tensions over that border have been a defining feature. of the relationship over the last four centuries. But in the early periods, it's really China, which is then under the Qing empire from the 17th to the late 19th, early 20th century, that looks like it's the stronger power in the relationship. Russian emissaries, when they come back from visiting Peking, which is now Beijing, Qing imperial capital, are kind of starstruck with what they've seen there. They're describing streets paved with stone, markets filled with all sorts of fruit and vegetables, stone-walled cities at a time when most buildings in Russia are made from wood. But you see the power balance really shift in the 19th century. China begins what has become known as the century of humiliation there. The Qing empire goes into decline and there's then just over a hundred year period where China loses a succession of wars, is forced to open its ports, grant trade concessions to foreign powers like Britain and France. But Russia plays its own role in that too. At the end of the Second Opium War in the mid 19th century, Russia awards itself around a million square kilometers of Chinese territory in the settlement of that conflict, much of which it still controls, including the land on which Vladivostok, the famous Russian port city of Far East, is now built, whose name literally means ruler of the East, which is still a source of of some tensions for certainly nationalist commentators in China. But it's in the 20th century that you see the roots of the modern relationship, so that both empires fall, Russian and Chinese, the Soviet Union, is established in 1922, it's really this phenomenal superpower by the time China emerges from both the Second World War and then the Chinese Civil War in 1949, which ends that century of humiliation. Mao Zedong declares the new People's Republic of China. And then you see that trip he makes to Moscow, which yes, he's treated quite poorly, but results nonetheless in the following months in the Sino-Soviet alliance. And it's sort of seen in the West. And I think there's a danger that we do this with the modern relationship as looking at that as an unbreakable alliance. We see them as two communist powers with so much in common. And it was assumed in Western capitals that the Sino-Soviet alliance was unbreakable. It's fed this sense in the West of the march of communism and the danger to the world from that. But in fact, behind the scenes, partly starting with Mao's treatment in Moscow, there was a great deal of tension, particularly on the Chinese side about being treated as the junior partner, the little brother in the relationship. There was a lot of resentment building up on the Chinese side. There was competition between the two for who was going to be the leader of the global communist movement. And it fell apart altogether in the 1960s, eventually coming to to actually a short border conflict in 1969. And then China's opening to the United States and Nixon's famous visit to China in 1972, which is a very long way of saying these two powers have seen what happens when the relationship falls apart. Until they settled their border issue, which was not until the early 2000s, it was 2005 that they signed a treaty demarcating their border. Both countries had to live with this real concern about how to defend that very long border between the two. Both sides understand that if this relationship is not managed properly, it can result in real conflict. And at a time when both current powers have many other territorial disputes, and in Russia's case, an active war that it's fighting the last thing they want to do is to come to blows with each other. So even if there were no other considerations at all, I think that history and their geography really speak towards the importance of managing their disagreements, maintaining peace and stability along that border, and working together rather than against each other. And then you have these really quite strong complementarities. So the relationship is now wholly lopsided, China is many multiples, more powerful and an economic colossus compared to Russia. But China really needs and wants what Russia sells, which is natural resources, which is military technology. China gets a lot of its advanced military technology still from Russia, and which is also energy security. A real concern among Chinese scholars, when I looked at assessments of the relationship, is whether China, in the event of, for instance, a crisis in the Taiwan Strait, Whether China could be blockaded, whether sources of, for instance, oil coming from the Middle East could be cut off by Western navies, whereas maintaining that friendship, that partnership with Russia means they will always have access to secure sources of oil and gas across their border, no matter what is happening on the other fronts. So economic complementarity, energy security is a big part of it. And then finally, and I realize I'm going on for a very long time, so I'll stop after this, is the most important thing, which is the contest with the U.S., Early on in the war against Ukraine, when you saw a lot of appeals to China to, you know, now's your time to drop Russia, to turn against Putin. One Chinese commentator put this very memorably, which is, will you help me fight your friend now so I can concentrate on fighting you later? I think the view among decision makers in Beijing is no matter what action China takes regarding Russia and the war, the U.S. is intractably set on competition with China. So, if China turns against Russia, it will still have to face the US, but now without this powerful partner, permanent member of the UN Security Council. So, China's position will be weaker in this great contest with the US, which China believes, and I think many people in the US believe, will determine the future of the global order. So, why on earth would they distance themselves from one of their most powerful and important partners? despite the many difficulties and I'm sure the real frustrations that come with that relationship and in particular with Putin's foreign policy.
3: And what are the areas of tension between the two? Where might we see splits or areas of disagreement?
2: The key factors that people always bring up are, number one, the Arctic. Russia has long been very wary of China's description of itself as a, quote, near Arctic power. Russia is concerned that as China gets more leverage in the relationship, it will have to grant, for instance, access to port facilities in the Arctic, that China will try to make significant inroads into a space that Russia considers to be a very key strategic territory. There's military technology. I mentioned that China gets a lot of its key technology from Russia, but Russia has long, in the words of one Chinese scholar, always held back a few tricks. and It's more out of concern about counterfeiting and reverse engineering, which China has significant form for, sort of buying a limited order of a certain type of Russian technology. And then lo and behold, they've developed their own indigenous version and they don't need to buy anymore. So that's partly what it is, retaining sort of proprietary control of key Russian technology, more so than concerns about arming China and the two sides coming into conflict. But that ability to hold back some technology from Russia is going to be really put to the test in the years that come as Russia is now so dependent on China it's going to be it may become much harder to maintain that position then there's central asia where china now has a military facility in Tajikistan and where china launched the belt and road initiative its major overseas infrastructure project in Kazakhstan in 2013 that has often been seen by commentators as a potential real source of tension, that China is making inroads into these former Soviet republics that Russia has long treated as part of its sphere of influence. But actually, in reporting out this piece, I spoke to a couple of very good scholars on this who said that, yes, that is true. China's presence is definitely much increasing in the region, but actually, their respective priorities and their visions for the region have more overlap then they have divergence. The priority for both China and Russia when they look at Central Asia is stability. Their greatest concern is that it could become a source of trouble, that it could be somewhere where, for instance, terrorist groups could use as a base to, to strike in China's case across the Western border into Xinjiang, which is Beijing's central preoccupation. So more so than the rivalry with each other, which is real and does exist, they are more interested in stability, really having that region not become a source of problems for both of them. And actually one scholar, I spoke to Raffaello Pantucci, put it like this, that Central Asia is effectively a footnote in the relationship. It's an important footnote, but it's not something they're prepared to fall out with each other over. I think the biggest danger and the thing that came out of the reporting on this was just the sheer inequality between the two sides. That's what effectively broke down the Sino-Soviet relationship in the 1960s, was these grievances, these real tensions that were they're subterranean for uh, some years and then really split violently out into the open. I think that is the greatest danger, is that right now you see China with Xi Jinping, for instance, praising Putin publicly, making real efforts not to humiliate Putin, not to show that he's weakened, not to embarrass him in public. If China seeks to push that further and to make to make more of a public show of its leverage over russia or try to push russia into some humiliating concessions i think that's probably that's probably the greatest danger between the two
1: just on that listening to you katie is fascinating thinking about the historical parallels and i guess you don't have to look very far back in russian history to see examples of a fear of encirclement or the fear of a greater power or the fear of some sort of disintegration of the great sort of Russian imperial entity. It's obviously quite imperfect, but I wonder if there is something of a parallel with the relationship between Russia and the West in the 1990s, where you had this enormous power imbalance, but a sort of positive tone and a sense of partnership and of shared interests. And there, over the subsequent decades, you can argue that the West never really did anything to fundamentally jeopardize Russia's national interests or to encircle it, as the Kremlin would say, and yet that mentality of they're out to get us, they're out to encircle us, NATO's a threat to us, still sort of developed in the the Russian elite. And from what you say, I guess that the difference is that back then there wasn't the unifying third, third force of the US or the West in the China-Russia relationship now to hold the two together. But I just wonder if there's anything you'd want to say to that parallel and its relevance or not to to, to the current situation.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I think some scholars talk about this as the grand strategic triangle with Beijing, Moscow and Washington and the forcing or distancing the other two powers in that triangle together or apart at any one time. You see them take different polls. I think the parallel is probably in terms of um, generationally attitudes towards towards Russia and China respectively. One of the things that I was asking, particularly Alexander Gabuev, who's a very good scholar on this, was about, there was long used to be this sense in Russia of looking down on China, of treating China as a power that yes, you trade with, um, yes, you want access to their market. But no, you don't want to send your children to university there. You want them to go to the UK, you want them to go to the US, you want a holiday in the south of France. There was a kind of period of looking down on China. And what he said was that period really ended after the global financial crisis. Once China, once they really understood the strength of the Chinese economy and the strength of the Chinese political system he described it as really there's this sense in russia of china is what russia could have been china managed to keep the party in power maintain the sort of you know global status that russia had enjoyed as the soviet union but restructure its economy introduce markets so it managed to make an economic transition without making the political transition and he said like there's a great deal of admiration now in moscow for china managing to pull off that transition and i think as you one of the things that came up again in the reporting of this is that this is not a temporary alignment. Short of a blow up, this is a generations long alignment that we should expect to go beyond Xi and Putin. And the sort of the officials of the future who will be very shaped by the war in Ukraine, by attitudes towards the West. The education they're getting and the attitudes they're developing towards China are much more positive. So that is likely to act as a sort of force multiplier for the relationship rather than Russia still had all of the lingering and that people who came to power like Putin and everyone who's now in the National Security Council had their education under the Soviet system, saw the West as a source of great suspicion, had all of those stereotypes and prejudices towards the West and have brought that very much into the present relationship. So I think the sort of the attitudes and the things the countries are learning about each other now and the educational exchanges between the two. you know, And I think this factor of, yes, a lot of Russian elites still want their children to get a Western education, but increasingly the opportunities that are going to be open to them are Hong Kong universities or Peking University. So that may also shape, I think, attitudes in the generations of officials to come. Unless, of course, the whole thing blows up as it is wont to do at periods in history.
3: Thanks so much. That's obviously incredibly detailed. But listeners who want to learn more can, of course, pick up this week's issue of The New Statesman, where Casey has written an excellent cover story covering this in depth.
1: Wherever you are in the world,
0: if you're interested in global affairs,
3: you can subscribe
1: to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12.
0: That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America.
1: Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
2: From the New Statesman comes audio long reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud.
3: The expensive house that sucked up a lifetime's wages became the savings account, the pension, the inheritance. That wealth is now beginning to dissolve.
2: Featuring writing from our authors, including... Will Dunn on The Great Housing Con. Why the coming crash will rewrite the economy. Sophie McBain on what's behind the surge in adult ADHD diagnoses. It's not pure coincidence that ADHD diagnoses have risen alongside the internet's attention economy. A vast infrastructure that has been designed to capture and monetize people's focus. And Karl-Uwe Knausgaard on why the novel still matters.
3: The poet Rainer Maria Rilke once wrote that music could lift him up.
1: Of course, there's nothing remarkable about that. Only he then added, and put me down somewhere else. I recognise that quote so well, especially when it comes to literature.
2: Ease into the weekend with our Audio Long Reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from The New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work.
3: On the 14th of May, tens of millions of Turkish citizens will go to the polls for what are expected to be some of the closest elections for decades. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who has ruled Turkey in one form or another for 20 years, could lose to a united opposition. Jeremy, you've been in Turkey on a reporting trip recently. Can you tell us what you saw over there?
1: Well, it does look like this is the best chance that the Turkish opposition has had for a long time of removing Recep Tayyip Erdogan from power. He has ruled Turkey for 20 years now. He became prime minister in 2003 and president in 2014 and has presided over a growing authoritarianization and de-democratization of Turkey. It has slid down rankings of democracy and is now considered more of a hybrid form of political system. And this potential last chance, as it were, for Turkish democracy does appear to be quite competitive. And it's basically because the things that have kept him in power for so long have all been breaking down. His compact with the Turkish people, as it were, has always been that trade some freedom to trade some democracy for competent, stable government and rising economic prosperity. And that's what's now broken down. Since 2021, Erdogan has essentially personalised the management of the economy and pursued a fairly unorthodox economic strategy that has involved using low interest rates to combat inflation. Unsurprisingly, that hasn't worked. Inflation soared. It's come down a bit in the last two months, but it was still over 50% on an annual basis last month. And that's obviously really causing Turkish households, including the sort of middle class households that were often the crucial swing constituency in Turkish elections to really feel the pinch. On top of that, there was the terrible earthquake in February that hit southern Turkey and northern Syria. Of which the official death toll is around fifty to sixty thousand, although multiple officials and politicians that I spoke to in Ankara said that the true figure is much likely to be well over a hundred thousand. And what that exposed was a lot of the kind of prosperity of the Erdogan years has been built on a construction boom, and that all over the country: new airports, trains, tunnels, bridges, apartment blocks. The earthquake illustrated how poor the building standards have been in many cases. A lot of corruption ahead of previous elections There have been a succession of building code violation amnesties, so illegally constructed bu- apartment buildings, for example, have been effectively given a green light when they should have been torn down and rebuilt. And the earthquake and just poor preparation for that that it exposed just gave the lie to the idea that strongman leadership was necessarily good leadership or competent leadership or efficient leadership. And so that's really brought down the sort of the edifice of, of Erdogan's political support. And then the, one further thing I should mention is that in the past, he's benefited from Turkey having quite a divided opposition that couldn't rally together to oppose him. And that now really is has, has, has changed. There is this table of six. So six parties gathered around the largest the largest one, which is the CHP, which is a sort of centre-left pro-European secularist party, whose candidate, Malkilis Darolu is running against Erdogan in the presidential election. On May the 14th, there are also parliamentary elections. And that block, those six parties, which don't have a huge deal in common, apart from their opposition to Erdogan and their desire to roll back his presidentialization, his personalization of power in Turkey. Um, does seem quite competitive. Just one other final point on that: the other significant player in all of this is the HDP, which is a left-wing party mostly supported by Kurds and has been a target for a great deal of oppressive action by the forces of the Turkish state under Erdogan. Now, Kurdish voters are a significant block in the election, and the HDP has declined to put up its own presidential candidate, so it is effectively endorsing Kilischdarolu. So that means you've got a very broad span of opinions, parts of Turkish society of the opposition now taking on Erdogan in that election. And the polls suggest that it is pretty neck and neck.
3: And this certainly seems the best opportunity to oust Erdogan for several elections, at least. As you've said, there's this opposition candidate, and he seems like a very different kind of candidate to Erdogan, and has campaigned in a very different way. But first of all, is it really possible that that the opposition could could gain more votes than Erdogan in as you said such a political system that's so dominated by Erdogan and has been for decades and I, I guess as a sort of follow to that will Erdogan allow himself to lose will he attempt to to cling on to power we've seen often unsuccessfully but nonetheless we've seen strong around the world over the past couple of years try and hold on to power after losing elections? Mostly unsuccessfully, it must be said. But could Erdogan hold on to power, or kind of try and falsify the results or something like that? It's true that
1: Kılıçdaroğlu is very different from Erdoğan. He's a much more low-key figure. He's not he doesn't have the charismatic force that Erdoğan has. But the argument is that after this oversized personality running Turkey for all these years, that might appeal to Turkish voters and it also I think makes him inoffensive in a way that helps him hold together that very broad opposition block. Just to give you an example of their different styles of campaigning when I was in Turkey last week, Kilish launched a TV ad or a video ad in which he essentially sat at his kitchen table and talked about the price of an onion, held up an onion in his hand and talked about how it's becoming unaffordable. Just a basic, literally kitchen table approach on the cost of living, on the impact of Edwin's incompetent economic policies. Meanwhile, Edwin was unveiling the launch of a new aircraft carrier, which I think just goes to show the difference in styles between the sort of bombastic nationalism on the one hand and this more modest Almost literally bread and butter politics on the other. As to whether or not it will be, a th- he can actually lose. It's certainly true that there is not a level playing field. The media is overwhelmingly captured by the government. Independent studies put the proportion of uh, coverage that the government gets versus the opposition at about 80 or 90% and you can watch turkish tv without speaking the language and still see that very clearly that it is it does look it does feel like Erdogan tv meanwhile a number of opposition figures particularly kurds are in prison the state of emergency that was brought in after the 2016 coup attempt has never really been effectively rolled back a lot of journalists are also in jail so it's not a fair election but there is a view that if the particularly if the opposition wins clearly enough that Edwin would struggle to mount a sort of January the 6th attempt to over over overhaul the result. And the view was, people I spoke to, or opposition figures I spoke to, gave different estimates, but the general view was that if, for example, Kilishtar wins by more than 1% or more than 3% or more than 5%, then whatever that margin is, it, it would be enough to make any attempt by Edwin to, to dismiss the result or call for a recount illegitimate. So it is a concern. And it's also something that foreign diplomats in Turkey are keeping a close eye on. I understand that as with the Brazilian election in December, as soon as it is clear, if it is indeed clear that Akilistirolu has won, the international community is expected to move quite fast to acknowledge him as the victor and give him that legitimacy. That obviously was a an important contributing factor to the relatively smooth transition of power in Brazil, obviously notwithstanding the mob that descended on Brasilia, but the fact that Bolsonaro did not manage to stir up so much violence and under disorder that the transition was genuinely jeopardised. It is a concern, but I think the view is that the clearer the win by Kilishtar the better. If the opposition also wins the parliament, that is also would be a big help. Neither of those things are certain. So I think there'll be a lot of reasons to pay close attention to the results on the night of May the 14th when they come through. I should just add that if neither Kilishtar nor Edwin gets more than 50% on the 14th of May, there will be a second round on May the 28th. And one area of concern that was raised in my meetings was what Erdogan might try to do in those two weeks between the the first round and the second round, particularly if it looks very likely that he will lose that second round. So yes, reasons for concern, but there is still a reasonable chance the opposition can pull this off.
2: It sounds like there are actually parallels with the opposition pitch, with Joe Biden's pitch in 2020 here, which was a sort of promise to make politics boring again. He, at one point, we were still then in the height of, you know, minute by minute updates from Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And he promised, you know, there will be days, even weeks, if I'm elected, where you won't have to think about who is the president in the White House. i I just wanted to ask you very briefly about what this means for Turkey's foreign policy. What would a shift in power mean, and particularly in terms of the approach to NATO and I guess crucially the war in Ukraine?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the comparisons with Biden are very striking. Like him, Kılıçdaroğlu is an older politician. He's 74. He's got a slightly grandfatherly appeal. And his offer is essentially that, to de-dramatise Turkish politics. And the one thing that the opposition do all agree on is this need to go from the current strongman presidential model back to a parliamentary one. And they have published a blueprint for doing that. So de-dramatise politics. And also a bit like Biden, I think the sense is that he sees himself as a transitional figure. And this was something that one heard from the Biden team around the time of the, the 2020 election, the aftermath, which is that he was going to stabilise politics and then hand on to a new generation. And that's very much the language coming out of Kılıçdaroğlu's team in Ankara. On foreign policy, it would definitely improve relations between Turkey and the West. I think it's fair to say the opposition have published a plan on this and they talk about restoring relations with the EU, with other NATO partners. For example, they've made it clear that they would lift Erdogan's veto on Sweden joining NATO, following obviously Finland doing so already. It's not to say that everything would change. One can overstate this point. The kind of orthodox Turkish positions on topics like relations with Armenia, or the future of Cyprus, or tensions with Greece would not go away. I think the opposition would continue to try and position Turkey between the West and China economically, albeit the reality is that the gravitational pull of the EU economy is much much greater still. But I think a bit as with Lula in Brazil, I mean Lula, we've seen there that he doesn't align with the West on everything, including Ukraine most recently. But there is a sense that, as with Lula, one can do business with the Turkish opposition in a way that wouldn't wasn't possible with Erdogan. I've written this recently in the New Statesman. We can put this in the show notes, but I do think that some of Turkey's slide away from the West and towards authoritarianism is, can be blamed on the West for not living up to some of the expectations of closer relations that were created in the early to mid-2000s, particularly vis-a-vis EU membership. And the point that I made there, and I think I hope has shared in governments in Europe, is that if the opposition wins, it will really be a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Europe to re-engage I think the EU should be looking at deepening the association agreement with Turkey if they win, visa liberalisation, expand the customs union, and really embrace Turkey and try and make good on the errors of the past. So I hope that that
3: would be the case. I'm sure we'll come back to the Turkey story as we approach the general election next month. Thanks so much for coming on both. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a nice review. It helps other people find the podcast. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time.